Welcome to The Long Way, a podcast of Think Tank Cardus. I'm Daniel Prusilides. This is a special episode of The Long Way. Normally, we aim for a 20 to 25 minute episode focused on a feature interview. But for this episode, we'll do none of that. Instead, it'll sort of be the really, really long way. In a moment, I'm just going to step aside and let two of my colleagues do the talking. Lisa Richmond, Vice President of Research at Cardus, and Brian Dykema, Vice President of External Affairs. If you've been following our work, you'll know that we released an open letter to the Premier of Ontario challenging him to roll back his COVID vaccine passports in the province. That led to a lot of public feedback. So now, Lisa and Brian will respond to that, and in the process, they'll lift the hood on what makes Cardus tick, what makes this think tank think the way that it does. So, here are Lisa Richmond and Brian Dykema in conversation. Hello, Brian. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you? Good. Good to be on the show with you. Yes. So this is an experiment. So uh, we are going to try to take listeners behind the scenes a bit at Cardis and dig into how we think through issues, how we choose issues to address. You know, they're not always issues, topics, maybe I should say. And uh, the impetus for this, the recent one was... A couple of weeks ago, we released a open letter to Doug Ford on the advisability or lack thereof of vaccine passports, the current policy in Ontario. Doug Ford's the Premier of Ontario. And we encourage people to respond to us as, as we always do. We welcome comments. We always read them and take them seriously. And, and we want to know what people think of our work. And we got a variety of responses. We got people very much in favor of the letter, the open letter, some people very much opposed, not a lot of people just neutral. But then as I was reflecting on that, I realized, well, those folks probably wouldn't take the time to write to us. Usually it's people who feel strongly one way or the other. So, so that makes sense. But we got a polarized response. And as we were thinking that over, we thought, why don't we try this podcast episode where we talk, not so much go through the arguments for and against um, the vaccine mandate, but or vaccine passports, I should make the distinction between the two, but um, how is it that we came to write that letter in the first place? And what sort of considerations came, um, went through our minds as we developed our position on that? Some people who did write back to us afterwards said, why did Cardis speak into this? Why? How does this fit into your work? So that's what we're thinking of doing for this this session. Um, anything else you would you would say at the beginning here? No, it sounds about okay. right. Yeah, okay, sounds good. Okay, sounds like a conversation we should be having more of. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that um, we do regularly, like at lunch, we we have good conversations just sitting together, us and our colleagues um, around the lunch table, and so we want this to be like the, those conversations. We want this to be as natural and real a conversation as possible. And uh, we'll see, we'll see if listeners are interested in hearing this sort of thing. And uh, so we encourage people to send us their comments. Um, so 
we did sketch out, this is going to be a natural conversation, but we did sketch out a few topics that we want to make sure we touch on. So I'm going to ask you the first one, which is, so Cardus is a Christian think tank, which is pretty unique. I don't think there's another Christian think tank in Canada. There are some in other countries and other religious think tanks that are not necessarily Christian, but of some other faith. So what does it mean for Cardus to be a Christian think tank and how does the Christian faith inform the research and policy work that we do? So how would you answer that? And it can be longer than an elevator pitch because okay. <laughs> right. that's a little short. Okay. Well, it's a, it's a great question. And that's like, that's the sort of the core question. Why, why do, why does Cardus even exist? So if I can't answer that well, then maybe we should just pack up our suitcases and, uh, Try to get other jobs, but this is this is the way I like to think about it. I think a lot of times in public debate around given issues, people will um, make vast leaps between their uh, when they think about it at all. They will make vast leaps between their first first principles and the policy that they find. Um, but more often than not, I actually think people don't pay attention at all to first principles when it comes to policy. They're more interested in things like, does it work or does it not? And that's an, those are important questions and we'll get into that on the vaccine passport issue and because we'll ask those, some of those as well. But you have to ask, whenever you're asking the question, does it work or does it not work? It's that question itself is informed by what type of society are you looking for? What view of the human person is informing your uh, answer to, does it work or does it not work? And in, and in that circumstance, there are all kinds of different answers to those deeper questions. What kind of society should we be going after? What is the individual's place in it? What is a human being? What is their purpose? And everybody's got those first principles, whether they examine them or not. There's something deeper that's informing um, their approach to public policy and public life. Cardus just tries to be explicit about it. We say that um, our first principles are first principles that derive from the Christian social tradition, which is a very old tradition. It's a contested tradition, I would add. It's not, there's not one voice, although you can find coherence among different voices. Um, and so we're just trying to be open and honest about that, that Christianity has over the course of centuries, millennia even, informed all kinds of debates from our use of money to questions of public health, hospitals, the pres preservation of life, the role of technology and science in preserving and enhancing life. And these are all questions that come up in the vaccine passport issue. Um, and they differ with some people who are, um, say, utilitarians, who say we should you know, maximize utility for the greatest number of people and minimize uh, harm for the, um, uh, the greatest number of people, etc. That's a different calculus than, than the, the Christian one. And sometimes it overlaps, sometimes it doesn't. So, that's why um, that's not why we did particularly the vaccine passports one, but that that is how Cardus's conception of a Christian think tank uh, informs it. One further thing I would add, and I'd love to hear you, Lisa, because you actually talk about this all the time. This is one of the things when you're vice president of research when you're doing research. One thing that I always say is, you know, look, the tradition and the Bible on which the tradition is drawn and the story actually, the, the story of God's work in creation from beginning to the end is not Google Maps. And a lot of times people treat it. So Google Maps, you put in your objective, I want this policy, and it'll say, turn left here, turn right here. That just doesn't work. Um, that's not how 
Cardis works. There's all kinds of things that you have to think about, evidence, numbers, culture, history, all that type of stuff. So I'd love to hear you respond to that. Like what, when you hear the word Christian think tank or public policy from a Christian think tank, what, what do you mean by that and, and how do you understand it? Yeah, um, so this is the one thing we talked about covering um, earlier. So I brought, I brought this quote. So I was recently reading an uh, essay by C.S. Lewis, and it was about something totally unrelated to the work of think tanks. But then I came to this one paragraph, and I thought, this is a perfect statement of how I try to use the Christian faith in the development of policy options. Or in my case, I'm, I'm like you said, responsible for research. You're the one responsible for policy and we work together and those things go back and forth as we develop um, the ultimate policy recommendations that Cardis is putting out. But let me just read this C.S. Lewis quotation and then I'll try to unpack it because it's a bit it's a bit dense. And if anyone wants to, to get this again, they can feel free to email me and I will, I will email this to you. So he says, uh, this, this being what he was talking about earlier, which is not relevant um, to our conversation here, but he says, this raises the question of theology and politics. And I'm gonna replace the word politics with policy, which in some languages like French, it's the same word. <laughs> um, we, do, we don't do politics at Cardis, we do policy. So this raises the question of theology and policy. The nearest I can get to a settlement of the frontier problem between them is this, like what belongs in each um, category, is that theology teaches us what ends are desirable and what means are lawful, while policy teaches what means are effective. And then he goes on to give an example. He says, thus, theology tells us that every man ought to have a decent wage Policy tells us by what means this, the decent wage for everyone, is likely to be attained. And then thirdly, the theology tells us which of these means are consistent with justice and charity. On the policy question, guidance comes not from revelation, but from natural prudence, knowledge of complicated facts, and ripe experience. Okay, so to unpack that, I visualize a sort of circle where we have certain foundational um, convictions or um, a framework that we're starting from, where we have this vision of the good life that we think is the good life for all human beings, the way they were made to flourish. Um, so that is the end that's desirable. But then how do we get there? So in some particular um, question of the way society is structured or functions or you know we need a policy a public policy on such and such that's where the research digs in to find out what means would be effective but then once we've got a set of policy options on the table we go back to our guiding framework to say which of these uh, are consistent with justice and charity. And justice and charity comes again from those foundational, in our case, the Christian faith. 
So if I can give an example, we recently published a paper on marriage and on using Statistics Canada data that shows that marriage is declining, as in fewer people are getting married in Canada, and the marriage rate is declining. And so we start with saying, we believe marriage is a good thing. Um, we have a couple reasons for this. Actually, we draw on social scientific research that shows the correlation. It's pretty well established that there's a correlation between being married and a number of other goods, both individual goods and social goods. So we have that from actually a non-theological source. But then we also have from our tradition this you know, guiding origin story uh, presented in Genesis in the Judeo-Christian tradition that says God created an first per person, but that person needed a companion and a partner, and God said, it's not good for this person to be alone. I'm going to make him a partner. So you don't have to, you don't have to believe that story literally. Some Christians do. Others view it as a, as a, um, a beautiful narrative expressing deep truths about human beings. Uh, either way, we draw on that tradition. And so we say, okay, marriage is a good. Then we have this question, okay, what would promote marriage? And we try to do our research in digging into uh, what policy options might encourage Canadians to marry. Now, some, like probably the most effective way to, to have more Canadians marriage would be to force them to marry, to marry. Obviously, then our Christian faith, and you don't have to be a Christian to also have this conviction that forced marriage is not a good thing, um, but our Christian faith is certainly um, guidance for us as to why coercion is not, is not uh, just or charitable. So we're going to take that option off the table. It may be a highly effective means, but we're going to take it off the table. So it's this circle that of motivation and, and um, impetus for our research, but then we do the research in pretty much the same way anyone would do, any think tank would do uh, the research. But then the, the results, again, are guided by our, the results as in which policy options are we actually going to be advocating for. Those are guided again by our fundamental commitments. Yeah. So, and even yeah. within, just to use your example, even yeah. within the marriage, there are um, things both from our tradition in terms of the motivation of what it looks like, right? The fact that men and women are, are made equal. They're both made in the image of God. And so they both bear that. That means that there are certain things even within marriages that are off the table, sort of domi right. domineering, of, a domineering perspective is off the table. What makes a good marriage, Correct. there are certain, um, right, our yeah. faith informs that as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. So when it comes to so how we do research, you know, Lewis, going back, he says, um, the guidance comes not from revelations. Like I said, we're, we're doing our research and policy development the way others would do it, regardless of their religious opinions or other way of looking at the world as to what makes the, um, a better or worse outcome for the world. Uh, they come not from that, but from natural prudence. So like just good sense of what works, a good sense of what works. Knowledge of complicated facts, that's the expertise that we're always trying to deepen in the research areas that we are involved in at Cardus, 
And then ripe experience, yeah, just experience over time. It interacts with the other two, but we hope we get better. <laughs> the longer we're doing something, we get better at being able to think about it, evaluate it, um, produce better better results. So yeah, yeah. And, things, and things like history would matter. Knowing what has happened in the past exactly. would be part of that. Exactly, experience of others, not just our own. Exactly, Great point. exactly. And other cultures would be an important yeah. part of that, and 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 also just paying attention to what's actually going on the ground with with people and that's that's an important part and one, one thing just to note is that um that i've always say this too all think tanks do this a lot of think tanks say oh we just deal with the natural prudence and the complicated facts and experience but that's not true like everybody so cd how which i think is one of the best uh think tanks in this country they've done great work for many many years i have so much respect for them and their people their sort of mission is to raise the living standard of canadians right which is a great goal. I also share that uh, that goal of raising the living standard. But when you start talking about things like standards, you're talking about better or worse. And what does it mean to have a better living standard? Um, is it just purely economic? Yes, obviously, we'd like more money. I, I would like more money. But to what end? To what end? They, they're agnostic on that. But there are certain things that, that are assumed in that notion of living standard, because you're talking about what life is and what it's for that they assume and may not um, be as explicit about. All I say to people, Lisa, is that Cardis is just explicit about what everybody else already does. And, um, and I think that's healthy. I think that's healthy because even the principles that are sort of at the core for us are contestable and we welcome people to contest it. They may say, look, this Christian view is wrong and here's why. And we're happy to have that conversation um, because we think that you know, we do have this shared world, this, this, the complicated facts, prudence and experience is a shared world that we can, we can examine these things and we can, we can, um, we can test them. And so, um, anyways, I think that's very helpful what you just described. Good. Um, I think, I think most, don't most think tanks though, they do, they do, they are explicit about what their basic framework is that they're coming from, the assumptions that they're starting with, right? Or, like what's unique about Cardis is is that our first assumptions are are religious in nature, but the fact that every think tank has certain assumptions it's starting with, I don't know. For sure, I just think even beneath some of the assumptions that some are made are others that are not examined, right. and so okay. that's that's fine, and that's fine. Like we don't need everybody to be a religious think tank. Um, no. Um, but it's just important to say that at the very basic, as you start unpacking those things, or unpacking is not a good one, unearthing perhaps, um, is, is you get down to something that is, it has to be taken on faith, whether you're a religious person or not. Um, it has to be taken on something that is, is ultimately um, not falsifiable, not provable, or what have you, right. something, something along those lines. Right. So, anyways. Right. That's good. Okay, going back just though for a moment to when we talk about 2000 years of Christian social thought, what are the sources there in particular? I mean, Christians have said all kinds of things. Uh, there's various authors or movements that we could draw on. Yeah. So one of the ones that we mention regularly is Catholic social teaching. So, can you can you just describe what are some of the themes within that? How did that tradition emerge? Um, yeah, what are what are just some of the, the more salient 
aspects of that. Yeah, it's, it's a long tradition, and it, as I said at the beginning, it's contested. So there are different views, different people, different parts of the Christian faith will have, have that. So, sorry, do you mean when you say contested, you mean different people will lay claim to that same Correct. phrase and say this, what I'm presenting is Catholic yes. social teaching? Yeah. Okay. And ours, ours I think, would, would emerge out of a um, two, two particular, although we're open to others and there's open edges to this, so it's mm -hmm. not, um, but there are two. There's the... I would say the sort of Roman Catholic social teaching and um, Reformed or Calvinist social teaching, which many of which overlap, um, there's some differences, but they're drawing on the interaction of people who follow Jesus with public life um, since the book of Acts and even and perhaps even beyond, uh, beyond that. And so we're drawing on people like Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and uh, Irenaeus and Hugo Brocious and Johannes Althusius and um, you know, you could go on and on, but a lot of these scholars have talked about uh, John Chrysostom, uh, which is more in the Eastern tradition. Mm -hmm. um, these scholars, theologians, and Christians themselves, I should add, it's not just theologians, but we're looking at, you know, actual Christian communities on the ground. Um, the people who stayed in the cities when the plague came in, in certain Roman cities and started ministering to the poor and the sick there. That would be part of that tradition. Um, and. There is a coherence there. As difficult as it is that there is a thread, there's a golden thread or a red thread, depending on which uh, red thread is a kind of a, a nicer, more biblical illusion. Uh, but there's a red thread that I think ties all these things together. Um, and there are certain things that it has in common that has brought, uh, I, I think are actually assumed by many of us in the West now, but um, uh, they're assumed because they've been, they've been brought in uh, by Christians over a long period of time. So one of them would be, deep concern for those who are most vulnerable. And that is not always the case. There are you know, um, many cultures, uh, many empires that did not care for those who were weak, those who were unproductive, and Christianity's uh, preference or, or a heavy focus on those who are most vulnerable or the weakest among us, which draws, of course, from the Jewish tradition. Um, and if you read some of the prophetic books in the, in the Jewish scriptures, which are Old, Old Testament, um, a very heavy focus on those who are poor and vulnerable. And I think that's that's sort of one mark of that tradition. Another is a sort of differentiated notion of authority. So Christianity, people like uh, Oliver O'Donovan and many others, of course, um, and said so that Christianity was the one religion that said that the authority of the political leaders was limited. Um, you'll see that throughout history in many cases, in whether it's Egypt and Pharaoh, or whether it's Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, that there was, or whether it's Julius Caesar in Rome, there was an equation of sort of the spiritual, the godlike with the temporal ruler. And Christianity was one of the first um, following Judaism to say, no, there's another authority here that needs to be paid attention to. Now it interacts with, of course, but it severely limited the authority and therefore the power of political um, uh, leaders. And it subjected them to things that transcended them. Uh, and um, I think that that tradition has uh, led to all kinds of things, both positive and negative. There's large struggles there, but um, taken at its best, I think it has led to a limitation of the use of power by political authorities and a subjection of those political authorities to an authority, a moral authority that exists outside of them. They are not um, above the law, so to speak. There's another law to which they must answer. 
And I think that's one of the, and then over, over time that of course differentiated into multiple spheres of authority that you had, you know, uh, recognition of the, the authority of uh, families, of schools, etc., to the point where we have a very vast and pluralist society today. Um, but that's just one example, um, a very quick sort of glimpse at mm -hmm. what we mean by that. There's this notion of um, multiple differentiated authorities, all the while bound together in a sort of a mutually enabling way that's sort of thriving, uh, seeking the thriving of the human person and all human people, regardless of their, of their status, their race, etc. So when you say differentiated um, authorities, either just two in the political authorities and the spiritual? No, I, I would say that the tradition as fully developed recognizes multiple um, authorities. So Lisa, you're vice president of research with Encartis. Um, you have authority in your position. In my, um, in my realm. In your realm, yeah. <laughs> your proper realm. Now, of course, and um, you're married, uh, so you have authority within that relationship. Um, you're a member of a church, you have a position authority within that. People are members of schools, of chess clubs, and what, and what have you. There's all kinds of different ones, and they all interact with one another. These are not, I, I really don't want to say that these are self-contained units. The point is that there are all these differentiated um, uh, networks and loci, loci of power and authority, but they're bound together to make something bigger. Um, and they all have it sort of um, in their heart. There are people there, right? And so that's what they're there. They're there to promote that. A school is something that is made because parents sometimes realize, and many parents who, because have had kids home during COVID, realize this all the more. There are some things that they can't do on their own that it's better to be part of a community to do. And that's, that's where schools, uh, for instance, trade unions, another example that you know, workers will bound or bind together to, to achieve certain ends in their workplace community that they're not capable or not able to do on their own. So would it be accurate to say that in, in traditional Christian social teaching, the view, the say, what is the good society? It's, it's these different authorities, each functioning in their own appropriate realms. Yes, and aided and abetted by one another. And so that you you mentioned okay. marriage early on, and that's a key thing. It's not just it's not just limitations because and we'll talk a little bit about government limitations and, and others and stuff like that. But it's not just about limitations. It's about how these things work together. So, and our research shows this. And as you said, there's a pretty high degree of consensus on the fact that children that are born in stable marriages, whose parents are together for a long period of time tend to have better educational outcomes, they do, they do well in school, and therefore they have better uh, employment outcomes, they have, tend to be healthier, all of these types of things, um, you know, which, which just shows that the family is a massive contributor to the state, for example, um, and, and vice versa. And if you don't have good laws from the state, um, you know, uh, chaos ensues. And that's why, you know, we, I'm so thankful for this country, which is peaceful and prosperous, we have the rule of law, and that rule of law enables all kinds of other things, business, commerce, art, etc. Um, and so they all sort of, they're distinct, but they need one another. Um, it's, um, I know the word ecosystem is overused, but yeah. it's just in the same way that, you know, a truffle or a, a mushroom of some sort will, you know, help keep a forest healthy. That's a similar way to different parts of society. 
sorry, I was listening to another podcast on truffles. <laughs> uh, so that's why that came up. That's great. Um, and I just have one more thought that I, I want us to broach just briefly before we jump into talking about this open letter. But is the Christian social tradition left or right? Good luck pinning us anywhere. Okay, why? Because left or right are are weak, multi-dimensional categories. So that's I'll put it that way. I'll be as blunt as that. Multi-dimensional. Well, or sorry, the single-dimensional. Oh. Uh, when when actually we need a multi-dimensional. So are you, am I left? So Cardus, let's take Cardus for an example. Right. Are we a right-wing think tank or are we a left-wing think tank? So most people would automatically jump to the assumption that we're right-wing. For a Christian think tank, we must be a right-wing think tank. Why? So why is that people, assumption? Why do people associate? Well, because I suppose the Christians that they see in the media are people who are maybe protesting something or other that is perceived to be a progressive cause, right? I would say, what makes a progressive cause progressive? So that's the question. That's so that just goes to show when you start asking these questions. So Cardis, for instance has written extensively on um, labor, the importance of organized labor for the flourishing of, of workers. Now that's typically seen as a left-wing thing. Right. Um, you know, that organized labor is seen as a Marxist thing or what have you. Mm -hmm. But there's this rich tradition in history, in Latin America, in uh, Asia, in Europe, where uh, there's this rich Catholic or Protestant uh, labor unions that have a distinct view of the importance of workers banding together to achieve common objectives. Now that makes us left-wing and so some people on the right think that Cardis is a crazy uh, left-wing organization because we support that or for instance that we'd be willing to say that the state should um, the state should have uh, a role in uh, regulating schools. And, you know, we do think that that's a role. We think that the state should actually allow more pluralism, but but that the state should have some role or has some interest in educational outcomes of its people say, well, that's statist. Um, we don't fit the boxes. And the reason we don't fit the boxes is because the boxes do not take into account the full complexity of human individual life or social life. And so, Let's just get rid of the boxes. Let's enjoy the beautiful kaleidoscope. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm, I, I joke, but I mean that seriously. So many of these boxes are, you're, left, you're a left-winger if you want government intervention, you're right-wing if you want the market to play more of a role. But what if we need both the market and the government, and there are a whole bunch of things that enable the market and the government to thrive? That's where we're at. We're trying to get into the multidimensional complexity mm -hmm. of social life. Mm -hmm. Not a binary government or market or government action, individual action. Um, so often our politics gets locked into those kind of binaries. That's right. And we're saying we've got a richer, richer as in more complex and multifaceted vision or understanding of how human beings function, how societies function. Okay. Yeah. Well, and your point earlier that you mentioned from Lewis, that bit about facts are complicated. Facts are complicated. Life is complicated. It's one of my, um, that's my personal tagline. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Happens to be true. Okay, let us then talk about why did we, so we talked uh, it within Cardis before we proceeded to uh, write this open letter. Why did we decide to jump into this issue? Do you want to take first crack at, at that? Sure. 
I think, I think it comes down to, there's a number of different reasons. So we are a think tank. We're trying to influence the things that are going on right now. So the sort of the basest and simplest answer is it's something being discussed right now and it has a matter of public import. So we wanted to have something to say about it. That's and just. And not just being discussed, but it's a really big, a big discussion and a big issue right now. Big discussion yeah. on a big issue with a lot of different people that affects right. all of Ontario. everybody. And so, Deeply. so yeah, so we said, okay, and I think what we wanted to do, Lisa, more than anything else was to help Ontarians and help our government think through how to think about this. And I think that that often doesn't happen. Politicians are so busy, their staff are so busy that they don't have time to think through the big questions. And what we wanted to do is say, take a minute and pause and say, hey, let's think through this. What's going on? What are the implications of this? Are there costs? Are there benefits? Are there things that we should have been paying attention, attention to but didn't? And I think that's the primary driver. Um, and as we sort of looked at it, we found that there were some, I still think that there's pretty strong evidence that uh, it's affecting certain communities that have often gotten the short end of the stick. Um, it's affecting them disproportionately, and I think that's worth paying attention to as well. Um, you know, we can talk about the extent to which that's true or mm -hmm. not, but. But that was our concern because we've been hearing that from other people in other communities as well. So that's one reason. Yeah, I like. I'm glad you said that. But our primary motivation is just wanting to say here. Here are some thoughts on that might help on how to think through this this issue, because as I look back on this paper, I got a copy here in front of me. I'm sort of leaping through again. Um, I wondered if we didn't we spent too much time on here's what's wrong in our view with the policy and we didn't spend enough time saying here's what to do instead. I mean we did have those two parts yeah. but most most of the paper was about the first part yeah. and we perhaps didn't give enough in the second part. Mm -hmm. If I were to do it again I think I might want to balance that a little bit. I suppose as we were drafting this and working on, on uh, versions the first part became the longer part because we wanted to justify what we were saying. You can't just make assertions. You've got to back them up. And also, life is complex. <laughs> this issue is complex. And so there's a lot of nuance that we wanted to bring in. And so that, that necessarily made the first part longer, um, our critique. Um, then the second part, though, could have been could have been strengthened, I kind of feel, but... Yeah, I agree. Would you, would you agree? Yeah. I agree. I think part of the reason is that the, the government was, the thing was already in place. It was already and in so place. And so we're trying to say, here's why you might want to think differently. Mm -hmm. um, but hopefully this podcast can help us talk through some of those. Talk through more. Why, why it is that there, you know, we call the paper, we've got better options. And I, right. and I do think that, you know, we talked, we talked about the failures and what we should do instead. I think you're probably right. We talked a bit too much about the failures. Um, but let's let's talk about that. Let's... Yeah. Okay. Where would you like to? How should we jump in? Maybe just go by section or something. Sure. Like the let's... first. So the first. Yeah. The first part is. Drastic measures call for drastic times, and so the point of this section is to say we are not in drastic times. Right. Well, let's just let's help the or... the, the people on on the. I'm gonna just do a quick thing yeah. just for context. Listeners. This is written in Ontario, so I think that's an important thing to note too that. Different contexts may call for a different response. We may have written a different letter if we were in Florida uh, or you know some other place where the, the case counts were different and all the rest of that stuff were different, vaccine uptake, etc. So I just think it's important for listeners to hear that, that this was written to Doug Ford in Ontario. 
Um, and it's all premised on the facts that emerge out of Ontario, not in right. places like Alberta or BC or Quebec or what have you. So, Good point. Um, so, but to your point about whether or not we're an emergency, um, you know, the government said, and I think this is another point, we actually actually take not an idealized situation. We can't argue with idealized uh, um, things. We have to deal with the facts in themselves. Mm -hmm. And let's just remember that Doug Ford said at one point, we will not do mandate, like we will not do vaccine passports. And because- no, it was only a few months before implementing them. That's right. Yes. And they were noted as being divisive. Um, at right. the time by the very person who then there afterwards implemented them. And so I think it's just important to remind people of that fact that we're not talking about an ideal situation here. We're talking about the actual one. And at the time when Doug Ford said we will not do vaccine passports, um, COVID related ICU occupancy was was higher than at the time of his hard no. He said in mm -hmm. mid July. So this this yes came in September 1st. Mid-July, so a month and a half prior, when ICU cases were much higher, when we still had vaccine, vaccines were readily available, um, he said hard no. Um, and so at a time when ICU counts were down, uh, when case counts were down, he reversed his no and said, yes, we're going to do them. And I think it's, it's fair to ask the question, why why in a time when the very things, the measurements that we were concerned about have, have improved, do we now need this harsher measure? And that I think is it, itself is a legitimate question to ask. Now, there are people who have good responses to that, but I think that's where we sort of started that, you know, um, you said no on this date when the case counts and the ICU uh, rates were this, and now they're better, and then you said yes. On what basis did you say yes? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so to me that points to a really important point, which is we're, we're trying to communicate that if you're going to, if government is going to uh, bring in a very, you know, a policy that has a very big impact, um, it's incumbent on the government to also explain very clearly the reasons. Yes, this is a very, you know, um, very strong policy, will really affect people in, in many ways. But here's why we're in a very serious situation. And, and here's, and so I think what we're trying to communicate is um, tell us, tell us why we're in this desperate situation. And we felt that that was missing and that that needed to be there. Yeah. Um, now, but how would you, how would you respond to, to someone who said, well, it would be a desperate situation if the passport policy had not been imposed and it's to avoid a desperate situation. That's the whole reason for bringing in this policy. Yes, we're not in a desperate situation now, but it's because we have this policy in place. So my response would be, show me the evidence. But it's not possible to show the evidence because it's a what would have happened if we had okay done. well that's fair so this is my response it's not vaccine passports that prevent us from hitting another outbreak it's vaccines that allow us to prevent another outbreak vaccines are highly effective 
I think um, those in ICUs that the number who are unvaccinated are massively disproportionately higher than those who are who are vaccinated. We see very few ICU cases in uh, breakthrough cases for people who've had vaccines and so on. So vaccines work. Vaccines are mm -hmm. amazing. In fact, you know, Cardis has written on how we could promote them in ways yeah. that build social solidarity. Right. So, so that's thing number one. Thing number two is we had and were we had. Uh, I think at the time. Um, I don't have the numbers in front of me, 83% were fully vaxxed with another 5% with the first dose. So that's 88% of Ontarians at the time this was announced had first doses. Right. We were doing a bang up job. In fact, for all the criticisms I have with the Ontario government and its failure to communicate, and that's my biggest one, which we'll talk about later, okay. but the one place where it absolutely shone like the morning star was in the vaccine rollout. We actually did a great job of getting it out. It was efficient, it was effective, and we had 88% coverage. That's world-leading coverage. And that's why we that's why the numbers are down. And the question I want to say is, I'd love to see, and what I wanted the government to say is, okay, if we're gonna do the passports, so let's just actually take the ICU, let's just say the, the desperate measures call for desperate times. Let's actually give them the benefit of doubt on that and say, I'd love for you to show me how these are going to actually work, how they're going to actually bump us from 88, and why they're necessary when we've had 88% at the time um, uh, vaccine uptake. We were doing a bang up job already. We were totally succeeding. Mm -hmm. And um, yes, cases were slowing down. I have some actually numbers that we can talk about a little bit later, but we were doing quite well and in fact seeing fairly continuous fairly steady upticks even on first doses prior to that and um and so i think the compelling you know the the case the compelling case for we need to do this now or else i just don't see how the numbers back it up okay that's really helpful to me because if i can paraphrase what you're saying um we can we can set aside this counterfactual by saying um, it's vaccination rate that creates desperate or less desperate conditions. I it's was... not the... And so the whole question about a vaccine passport then becomes, does that, does that increase the vaccination rate? Does that result, is it an effective means for the end? We, we're agreeing on the end here, which is the more Ontarians who are vaccinated, the better. For getting out of this pandemic that is the way to get out of this pandemic um absolutely so let's assume that let's we could have a separate conversation about whether that's true or false but i think you and i both agree it's it's true at least that's our working assumption yeah. so um then the question becomes do does this policy uh is it an effective means to that end that's right, right. okay that's right. So, so yeah. and I would say what matters, the rate matters, of course. So the rate is the percentage of people getting it on a, on a daily basis, uptick or downtick. The rate but of vaccination that we're talking right. right now? Okay. But the, the real thing is the objective, you know, like the objective number, how many Ontarians, we have say 20, I don't know the yeah. exact number, but we have X number of Ontarians. Yeah. How many of them have actually gotten the shot? Mm -hmm. That's the thing that we need to know. And can I share some numbers like that yeah, sort of back sure, up? Sure. So I did some of the numbers. So it's important. This is, again, the complicated facts uh, bit looking mm -hmm. at that. Ontario, to its credit, has been releasing the daily numbers of vaccines. Yeah. Um, Vaccin uh, vaccinations. Yeah, number of vaccinations. So they've been they've been doing that along with with case counts and so on. So here's the case. 
In the 54th, so September 1st was the date that the passports were announced. In, and so when I did these calculations, it was 54 days afterwards. So on the other side, in the 54 days um, since the passports were announced, so after September 1st, the average daily number of first doses was 11,833. Mm -hmm. So I'm assuming that the, 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 what they're really after are the first, the first dose, because once you get the first dose, the likelihood of getting the second mm -hmm. is, is great. Right. So that's, the, that's after the passport. But if you looked at the 54 days prior to the passports being announced, so the time when we were actually doing well, there was an average of 13,573 doses per day. So we were doing more like doses per day. or something? Yeah, we were doing okay. more doses per day. So now you're going to say, okay, well, that's not fair because there, you know, in August and so on, there were fewer people to get it overall. So that, that's not a fair measurement. What you really have to do is measure the, the, the shorter timeline around the, 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 the announcement of the passports. Make sense? Okay. So 54 days, that's not a good measurement. You can't look at averages of 54 days because you're going back to the time when people were just able to get it for the first time. So of course you're going to get higher numbers. Okay, so now let's look at it from a different area. Let's take the three-week period prior to and afterwards. The three weeks is the time after Doug Ford said no, a hard no. So remember, he said a hard no to them in mid-July. Mm -hmm. And so the three weeks prior to September 1st were basically the month of August. The early month of August mm -hmm. and so if you look at those three weeks there was an average of 11,705 um, shots per day in the three weeks prior after the passports were announced you did see an uptick there was an average of 13,910 new ones per day so the difference if you're gonna say that the passport made the difference what is the actual number of that difference it's 2,205 more shots per day that's mm -hmm. the um, so you say okay that's as a percentage that's mm -hmm. a significant that's a good little uptick right mm -hmm. um, but over the course of those three weeks that equals forty six thousand three hundred and five doses or basically roughly four days of doses at the lowest pre passport rate so the way I the way I think about it is we've basically bumped up the timeline by four days through this passport. If you're assuming that the passport is responsible for the entire uptick, which I think there's reasons to doubt that, um, but if you are. So then the question becomes, this gets into the prudence question, was four days quicker worth it? Particularly when you ask a couple of things, when you introduce a couple of counterfactuals. One of the counterfactuals would be, have we hardened anybody's opposition to it because of these passports? I think there is some. I think there's some evidence. We cited in our paper some evidence from France on the on the impact of passports on those who were hesitant um, when the passports came in. They actually hardened and became, you know, opposed, anti. So that's one of the counterfactuals that we have to consider. And then the other counterfactual is: Is that the only way we could have gotten such an uptick? Is there another way that we could have done it? And the one thing that that's the one question I have to ask is that at the same time the government announced its passports, it also announced what they called its last mile strategy, which was done according to best practices from vaccines, which is community outreach, community information, community access. And that's been shown to be successful in all kinds of places, West Africa with Ebola and so on. And so the question is, how do we actually tease out that that difference of 2,205 per day? Was it all the passport or was it because we had actually gotten 
into communities and started doing mm -hmm. some good work. Yeah, you don't want to introduce two variables at the same time. Yeah, we, then you don't know what to attribute what to. And we don't, yeah, we don't know the answer to that. I think there's good evidence from other places that suggest that that community-based stuff was actually pretty effective. So let's take one of the communities we were talking about earlier. Mm -hmm. In May, prior to May, so Ontario Public Health, again, to its credit, has shared actually a good deal of information. Prior to May, um, they looked at vaccination rates in two categories of, they're concerned about two populations. One were diverse populations, and, and so that's basically uh, racially diverse uh, people and immigrants. Um, they call that, you know, more or less diverse neighborhoods. Mm -hmm. Prior to May, the more diverse neighborhoods actually had a significantly lower uptake of vaccine uh, uptake prior to May. There was a large effort in, made into those communities by public health to explicitly reach out to those communities. And after May, you see that number actually go inverse so that those, those um, racialized or those diverse communities actually started to do better. So there's some evidence to suggest that that community outreach is a, is a highly effective um, way of increasing vaccines. Now, they still haven't had inroads with the, with the most vulnerable in those communities. There's um, a number of um, black doctors in, um, in Toronto have said there's still uh, significant shortages and uh, 20 to 30% lower vaccine uptake in, in communities that are uh, racialized. But the point is, we keep talking about the efficacy of passports and so on. It seems to have had a reasonably, uh, an effect, but a reasonably small one. It accelerated our, um, our you know, getting to 100 by four days. Right. But we don't know whether that four days was the cause of the passports. I'm sure there is some impact and I have some thoughts on who was likely affected. Um, but there were also that other initiative that the government did at the same time that we, and we can't untangle that effect. Again, this is Ontario. I think the data in other places like Alberta is slightly different, but I think it's worth asking those questions. Um, in any case, the government didn't share any of the data or any of the thoughts on what its goals or objectives were by putting this passport in. And I think they should have done that. So building off of what you've just said, um, if the goal of the passports is to increase vaccination rate, prompt people to get vaccinated who aren't yet vaccinated, it would seem to me we have a prior question to ask, which is why are people not vaccinated? Those who currently are not vaccinated, why not, right? Yeah. And what have we heard from the government of, on that question? because the answer to that question is going to very much help the government to know whether a passport policy would would conduce to prompting people to get vaccinated right right i mean it would depend on their their reasons for not being right yeah i personally haven't read anything that's m more than anecdotal about who the canadians are who are not vaccinated so is that is that just a, a gap, um, and is it part of our critique that uh, the appropriate public authorities ought to? Do yeah. they do they have do they know that and they're and they're not sharing that information? Are people sharing that information? What yeah. what do you know about that? Well, we do have some we do have some information. Um, okay. It's not not perfect. It's not great. So okay. the one the one bit is that um, the government has been monitoring. Um, 
vaccine uptake in diverse communities. Right. So they have been monitoring that. And as I said, they're, um, they're higher in those communities. The younger people in those communities are vaccinated at a higher rate, but those 60 or older, those who are particularly vulnerable to COVID because it has a disproportionate negative effect on people by age, mm -hmm. um, they're under vaccinated. So we do know that, but why? We but don't why? know why. The margin, like the, the, the materially deprived is the way that the public health agency describes it. Mm -hmm. Their significant neighborhoods where there's significant material deprivation are significantly lower um, by a by margin um, uh, than than those who who are in wealthier wealthier neighborhoods. So we do know that there are some neighborhoods where the vaccine uptake are lower. As far as the why is concerned, I think there's a whole host of complicated reasons for why people aren't getting their vaccines. Some are good, some are bad, and some are in the middle. And um, good, bad, you mean like justified, not justified? Justified. Some have, are, will have good reasons. So I'll give you an example of a, um, a citizen who comes from a country like China, where there has been government intervention in medical things like childbearing or so on. They would be right to have uh, distrust, at least the distrust in government and government. It's understandable. It's understandable, it's understandable. Yeah. right? It's understandable to say, okay, look, if you've experienced that in a place like China, um, Perhaps it's understandable that you you have a distrust in medical authorities in Canada. So that's I would say that's one of the good um, one of the good. Now I think that can be addressed um, by outreach and actually speaking to people. Um, there are others who have um, concerns, or some some just don't have concerns. Some have just had inertia. Mm -hmm. And um, when you talk to people in public health and they look at you know say twenty year old men um, with some of the things that men in their young men in their twenties. The men, uh, the people most likely to be uh, uh, fine if they get COVID or not fine, but have, you know, like one of the right. least likely to end don't, up in the hospital. Don't get seriously Ill they don't get seriously yeah. ill and they're busy doing other things and so on. That was what I understood was a low uptake. Okay. But then there are other people who have, for a variety of reasons, some, um, I would say, less convincing to me objections. Um, they just oppose the state telling them what to do. Um, there's concern about that. I think there's... Um, there are certain concerns in certain religious communities, like in Aylmer, for instance, that have, they have, there's a religious basis for their opposition. Whether that's appropriate or not is another question. But you're right. It'd be interesting to hear the government say, who are these communities and, and what, what appears for them, the government to actually get to know that. Yeah. Yeah. So what I would, I think what I would have loved to see is bef when, the, when the passport policy was being announced, the government saying, okay, publicly as part of their communication about this and why they had come to this policy would be there's this percent of Ontarians who are eligible for vaccination and have not yet had their first dose. And we have done research to the best of our ability to understand the reasons why. And there is X percent of those people for whom it's really just a question of inertia. And this policy will prompt them to take that step because suddenly they can't enter restaurants and whatever and they're, they're going to get the vac vaccination. Yeah. Um, and we know that there's this percent of people for whom the policy will just harden their their primary reason is I, I hate it when the government tells me what to do and I'm not going to do it. And um, we realize, we understand that by bringing in this policy it's probably going to harden a lot of those people they're going to be even less likely to get the vaccination than they were before. However, that group is 
of this size, this other group of inertial people is of this size. We made that calculation and we believe that overall this policy will increase the vaccination rate. Like something like yeah. that would be, that would not go a long way it to would. help. Um, and I think it would help build trust. Build trust, right. Okay, let's talk about trust. Yeah, yeah. If we go back for a moment to our earlier conversation about the sort of different spheres of authority, not only exercising their authority appropriately in their various roles or spheres, but also supporting one another in doing it. Mm -hmm. um, that requires trust. Yes, it does. It requires that, yeah, you take it from here. Say, say more about that. No. And how has this issue, how have we seen trust functioning in this issue? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I think trust comes when you say something and you do it. Distrust arises when you say one thing and you do another. And I think that Ontarians, you know, as a parent um, who's experienced um, an announcement coming from the Minister of Education on a Friday, and then a completely opposite announcement coming from the Premier on a Monday. Uh, and, and this is just one example, I think, of a, of a large basket full of uh, examples where the government has failed to do that and fair to share the information, as you said, as you described perfectly earlier about, I wish they had said this, this mm -hmm. and so on. Mm -hmm. I think that's the problem. That's the problem here is that what this, my concern about the vaccine passport is that it's going to undermine trust and the very public health authorities that are necessary to bring us through this pandemic and the next one, because there may come another one at some, they tend to come every hundred years very or likely. so. <laughs> it's very likely. And if we are undermining the trust in the institutions that have the capacity to help bring us through this, as we've seen this, we're actually shooting ourselves in the foot for the next one. And that's my concern. And if there's actually good data on that, Lisa. So there's a, a high correlation between places where trust in government is high. So a place like Denmark, now, Denmark is, is unique because it's like culturally homogenous and it's very small and so on. But in places where um, trust in government is high, you know, uh, compliance with vac vaccine up, like vac uh, not, not compliance, but like uptick of vaccine has been higher. Compliance with public health measures has been higher. Places like Poland, where they have a legitimate distrust because they were ruled by the Soviets for so long. There's this really sort of skepticism of government and distrust in it. Massively lower uptick. And... And that's what we want, you know, the, the government to consider. And that's why these—that's why this this type of intangible things like trust really matter. And and that's why um, being clear about not just your motivations, but the data that you're using to to yeah. arrive at that is so critical for public health yeah, success. Absolutely. Yeah, I w I, I want to adjust something slightly that you said earlier. Trust comes from when you. Distrust comes when you say when the authority says one thing and does another. I agree with you, but I would I would really say trust in authority comes best when the authority explains how they reach the decision. Um, they're, when they're authentic and honest and share the information yeah. and explain how they arrived at the decision that they are now implementing. Yeah. In my own personal experience, as somebody who's had in the workplace leadership over others, that is the best approach that I've found 
what I find is that almost everybody um, is willing to accept the outcome when those other things are in place. When I'm authentic and open about how I arrived at the decision and why I believe it's the best one, and when I'm communicating that to people in a respectful way toward them, even if they don't agree with my decision, they are much more willing to accept that that is the decision and that we, you know, someone needs to make the decision, it's appropriate for the leader to, and we're all going to move forward on that basis. And the trust is as strong as it, as it can be. Yeah. And I think that's true for in the really big picture with government over, you know, millions of people. Yeah. Right. And I think we've seen real failure there. And I'm wondering why exactly. It seems like it should be pretty simple to do. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, um, first of all, your articulation is way better than mine. I think, <laughs> I think I think you're right. Like, I think the way you've described it as being clear, sharing the data, the information, uh -huh. the thought process, the logic that you used to to, to right. arrive at that is super. Um, I don't know why governments failed to do that. I think early on they did that. And there was a tremendous amount of grace extended to the governments early yes, on. Yes, early on. We when, were all like, okay, we've never experienced this before. we got to shut down for two weeks. Oh my goodness. That's like, right. And, and I think people yeah, were willing, we're as, as you said, willing to give the government the benefit of the doubt. Because we all sort of said, we don't know what the hell we're doing. We don't know doing. what's going on. And um, we realized the government doesn't know either. And they're just trying to cope. And... They're just trying to do their best. And there was an authenticity there. And I think, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, you know, Ford's a populist. And that's the one thing He's very, very good at that. And, and I actually, people were like, yes, we're willing to give you the benefit of the doubt. Um, I think over time, as more and more data about COVID came out, um, as certain policies, and I'll, I'll mention here the, you know, the, the actually, you know what, I, I'm going to, the, the disproportionate, I'm going to mention the churches, for instance, sure. uh, churches, mosques, synagogues, sure. because I actually think there was a failure here. And I think even with the vaccines, there's a failure to understand religious communities. And I think that's a long-term failure of government, that the way in which religion motivates people, um, it's not that they're being deliberately obtuse, although sometimes I think they are. Those are the ones that get into the news. Those right? are the ones that get yeah. into the news, you know, but I think in general, you know, I think people over time, let's, so let's take, there's a certain segment of the religious community that's vaccine hesitant. And I think part of that arose because they saw, you know, why is it that my, um, uh, the, the mosque is closed, or why is it that the synagogue or the church is closed, but the liquor store down the street can have like, you know, uh, as many people, like that didn't make sense to people and they couldn't understand the logic and the government, the logic the government provided wasn't there. Right. And for, for, so for something that's so core to people to have that taken away. And I think, you know, in BC, it was even worse than in Ontario. Right. I think Ontario at least tried. I don't think they did a great job of understanding those communities, but they at least tried. Um, and made some, I did some, a better job. But if you fail to account for the daily experience, going back to that thing from Lewis, of your actual citizens, and you try to say, this is the way your citizens need to act, instead of trying to say, how are you acting now? And how can we walk alongside you to address those concerns? You're gonna fail. You're gonna have policy failures all the time. And and I think that's what's going on here to some extent. I think that's the, to some extent the distrust has been earned by not intentional nefarious actions by the government, but a failure to properly understand the communities. Right, that's a good way to state it. I'm not, I'm not suggesting there's some kind of like 
malicious intent or something in these failures. Because um, in other places, so in Nova Scotia, for instance, um, there are a large number of black churches in Nova Scotia, part of the, you know, the history of Nova Scotia, the history of Canada. Um, and the government right away said, we're going to work with the elders and the pastors in those churches to promote vaccines. Um, massive success, wow. massive success. Yeah. The Ontario government knew in May, if not earlier, that there was some hesitancy in those communities. And I'm really interested to know, did they have a plan to reach out to those communities in good faith? Um, and, you know, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. Um, it's just another example of how I think our society could do with, um, the authorities could do with actually understanding the role of religion in people's lives a little bit better. Um, anyway, just that, some thought. That's, I think that's really great. That's a really great point. Uh, I think a lot of assumptions are made, right? That um, may or may not bear out. And also religion is, a complex phenomenon that's got different elements for different people. I mean, for people in the Christian world, which I know better than other faiths, in some church traditions, there's a, there's a sacramental theology, which is you, you need to participate in those sacraments, which are bodily activities, uh, whether it's the mass or others. For other Christians, streaming a service online and watching it, um, isn't, doesn't replace being there in person, but it doesn't change the nature of the, you know, the grace being bestowed on you as, as yeah. it is through the sacraments for those who have a sacramental faith. So yeah. um, just not knowing that. We should probably wrap this up up soon, but I I wanna um, I wanna perhaps tackle one last topic, which comes at the very end of our paper. And um, we talk about Canada's pandemic, pandemic preparedness plan, which was in existence before this. And it said it sets out two goals, to minimize serious illness and overall deaths, and to minimize societal disruption generally. How'd that plan work out? How did that, how did that work out? And I think that this gets to what we call in the paper COVID exceptionalism. And also, I was thinking back to we had a we had a um, a live event, which people can still watch the recordings of back in June, called Exit COVID, and we wrote a paper for that too. And we talked there about um, a lack of weighing things against each other and just having sort of an absolutism. Yeah. And we've seen a sort of absolutism on this issue take root, right? Yeah. yeah. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, it, I do, because I actually think that gets into the sort of the complicated facts and the, some of the understanding the experience. The absolutism is what I actually think it also contributes to distrust. It doesn't allow for the nuance that is sometimes there. Now, there's a limit to this nuance. Just to be clear, I'm not I'm not saying we have to accept every position as equally valid, but you at least have to approach it and understand it. And if you can't understand it right away, our response should not be right away to say do this or else. And I think there's been a lot of the do this or else um, mentality. I think it's creeping into all kinds of things that makes for an unhealthy society after we exit this pandemic. Yeah, I so, so I'll give an example. A lot of um, places right now are making vaccines 
um, mandatory for the maintenance of your employment. Right. I think there are real challenges for that. So, you know, I've seen various lawyers like I think it's Howard Levitt and so on saying it's totally legal. I don't care whether it's legal or not. I want to know whether <laughs> it's good or not. And so you have these situations where, you know, I come from a union environment, right? And often I want to find accommodations. You want to find ways. Okay, you have this concern right now. Let's find a way to accommodate that concern if we can. It may be that you can't, and that the, at the end of the day, that that has to happen. But I don't think there's a there's there's been a willingness to try to understand and accommodate people and walk alongside them and slow have to take a little bit more time to bring them around. It's been a very heavy-handed response, and on particularly on things when you know I've heard from the the one minister saying these people shouldn't even be able to access EI because they've you know they've quit of their own volition, etc. That is just hard-hearted, um, and again not likely to contribute to the solidarity that we need to face the next crisis. And in solidarity, I mean, going back to Christian social teaching is at the core of that, what's going to bind us together. And the more we get into the, you know, you're all in or you're all out, those divisive, that's divisive. And it's unlikely to lead to the type of ties that bind and the ties that bind us together so that we're stronger to face the next crisis. And, and I think that's at the heart, you know, of what we're trying to do here at Cardis and what we were at for this paper was to try to find ways. How do you build solidarity while fighting this this, this heinous uh, virus that's affected so much of us and, and has left so many people destitute? So I think that's a great point, and it reminds me of I I once took a course on conflict management. It was a fantastic life changing course. Um, but one of the things that we were taught to do there is so often when there's a conflict, you visualize yourself across the table from your opponent and you're both fighting for your own position. And instead, you need to think of yourselves, both parties need to think of themselves as being on the same side of the table and on the other side of the table is the problem. Mm -hmm. And they are seeking to find a solution to that problem that they can both accept, that meets both their needs, that, you know, whatever. And that's, that's my image now of solidarity um, together, we need to face this, this pandemic together as Canadians, instead of pitting ourselves against one another. Um, so it's a good spot to end. Yeah. So, uh, listeners, thank you for, for listening. Maybe, um, you thought this was too long. We decided to do this naturally and to keep talking till we sort of felt we had said most of, of the things that were on our minds. Uh, and with the idea that people can stop and start listening as they choose and or can just click off and not finish it if they don't want to. I, however, if you have got this far, uh, if you'd like to send us comments, which we would love to receive from you, um, you can email either of us. So Brian Dykema's email is B Dykema. I guess we better spell that. <laughs> B-D-I-J-K-E-M-A at cardus.ca and mine, Lisa Richmond is L Richmond, like Richmond Hill, Ontario, uh, at cardus.ca or you can just find our email addresses on our website. We would love to hear from you. Tell us what you thought of this. As we said at the beginning, this was an experiment and we are uh, interested in, in doing this again and doing this more. So we envision if, if there's interest on the part of you who are listening, we are thinking of, um, as we bring out 
research reports in the coming months to have this kind of conversation about the underlying or background thinking that went into these reports. We're also potentially thinking about talking to guests from time to time. So thank you for listening and uh, bye for now. Farewell. Thank you.